Well, if you joined us this past Sunday or maybe you caught up on the message at some other point during the week, which, by the way, you can do that actually every single week by hopping on over to grumlaw.com slash messages, or you can find us under Grumlaw Church, wherever it is that you happen to grab your podcast. But if you did join us last Sunday, we discovered that every single one of you, all of you watching right now, you are all very powerful people because, you ready for this, words are powerful. And last week, Jason did an incredible job reminding us that that our words influence the direction and the quality of our lives and the direction and the quality of the lives of those around us. That the the words spoken about you and over you and and to you have shaped you. As our words go, so go our lives. I mean, think about that. The, The words you speak to others have the ability to literally shape the direction and the quality of their lives. Pretty heavy stuff when you think about it, especially when we consider how unpredictable our mouths can so often be. We talked a little bit about that last week. James, who's actually the, the brother of Jesus, which again just kind of continues to blow my mind, thinking about the idea where you grew up in a home where Jesus was your older brother. He, he points out to us that, that our mouths, they're, they're actually untamable. You, you cannot tame your tongue, but through God's grace, maybe, just maybe, your mouth and my mouth, maybe our mouths can be guarded which is precisely why every single one of us, whether you would identify as a Christian or not, we would all be wise to be, and this is exactly actually how we started this series, so come on, everybody do it with me. So we would all be wise to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Quick to listen, slow to speak. Now, Now we all know, This is something that's obviously so much easier to talk about than actually do. And you would think that if there's anybody that would have maybe had this mastered by now, I don't know, maybe it would be me, the the pastor, the guy who's been literally studying this passage of scripture for like a month now and like preparing these messages. It's like, surely it's committed to memory. I mean, maybe I'm getting this right 100% of the time, but no, not the case. In fact, just this uh, past Sunday, I was sitting in Heartland. That's the second service. I've, I've heard Jason's message now once. I'm, I'm in the middle of the second message and almost like clockwork, like I was being tested. Uh, I got a text message from somebody and, and it was one of those text messages that when I received it, I, I immediately went on the defensive. And again, you would think with like Jason talking about this 20 feet away from me with me, all this studying that's been going on for the last month, like you would think with all these hand motions, you know, quick to listen and slow to speak, like maybe this would be at the top of my mind, but no, instead I was actually very quick to speak uh, in this particular case. I was quick to text. And I immediately shoot a reply back to this person rather than just tabling it, rather than going, okay, I just need to think about this for a moment. I need to sit on this for a moment. I immediately send a text back. And in fact, what I sent to this person was just flat out not true. It, it, it was a lie. I, I don't know how lying works for you in your life, but for me, uh, the Holy Spirit doesn't really seem to let me get away with it <laughs> anymore. And, and so this is all I'm thinking about now that I've lied to this individual. And so the very first thing that I do upon leaving the property around 1.30, 2 o'clock is I get on the phone, I call this person and I say, hey, I just want to let you know, this is really embarrassing, but I lied to you through text. That, that wasn't actually truthful at all. I'm, I'm hoping that you'll forgive me all again because I was quick to speak and I was very, very slow to listen. So, so the reason I tell you that is, is I promise I understand how difficult this is to actually live out. Again, there's a reason that it's literally tattooed on my thumb because I botched this up so frequently. Now, now uh, hopefully uh, last week you recall that Jason left us with three words about how we should address the issue of speaking hurtful words to others. Th- these three words, you remember? Remember, surrender, 
confess. Remember, surrender, confess. Remember that your words are powerful. They literally have the ability to influence the direction and the quality of other people's lives. So remember that. Also remember the advice that we're getting from James, the advice that we're gonna receive today from the Apostle Paul, the, the advice that we received from Jesus. Keep those things at the top of mind, these ideas of being quick to listen and slow to speak. Number two, surrender. This is one of these areas that unfortunately, y'all, unless you have a daily dependence on Jesus, you are not going to get this right. It is going to be impossible for you to guard your tongue unless you are surrendering this to your heavenly father. And then lastly, confess. You're still not going to get this right 100% of the time. There's still going to be those moments where you're looking at yourself in the mirror going, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that again. And in those moments, rather than using your words to, to dig an even deeper hole, Instead, be quick to confess. Go to that person whom you've offended. Go to that individual that, that you have hurt in some way and just confess that to them and, and in turn confess it to your heavenly father as well. So, so remember, surrender, confess. Now over the first two weeks, we took a look at, again, some of the words of James, again, who was the brother of Jesus. Today, we're going to be shifting gears a little bit, and we're going to be taking a look at some of the words from a guy who went by the name of Paul, the Apostle Paul, as he has come to be known. Uh, Paul, one of the very interesting things about his life is that he wasn't always a devout follower of Jesus. In fact, he kind of began his life as a Pharisee. Uh, a Pharisee was a, a particular sect of Judaism that practiced this really, really strict adherence to the law, these 613 rules contained within the Jewish scriptures. And, and he was better at following these rules than really anybody. So in this new movement known as the way, what we would now refer to as Christianity steps onto the scene, he, along with most of the other Pharisees, looks at this and they're like, this is a direct affront to Judaism. We got to do something about this. And so Paul takes one look on up to heaven and he's like, don't worry, God, I got this. And he makes it his life's work to eradicate and eviscerate Christianity from the face of the earth. He, he wanted to make sure that Christianity did not make it out of the first century. And y'all, I'm telling you, he was a type A personality, and he was getting it done. He, he was going around uh, arresting and, and persecuting and abusing, and in some cases, even killing Christians. But then through an event that only God could have possibly orchestrated, he has this Damascus Road experience that's just kind of become a, a common phrase, but it actually originates from Paul. Uh, and he goes from, from being on the front lines trying to eradicate Christianity from the face of the earth, and now he's spreading the name of Jesus around much of the ancient Mediterranean world. In fact, we're probably not gathered here today if it wasn't for the missionary work of the Apostle Paul. Another interesting thing about his life is he wrote better than half of the New Testament, which is kind of the second half of the Bible, through a series of letters that he wrote to these early Christian churches that he helped to start. One of these churches that he wrote a letter to was in an area called Ephesus, and therefore it's aptly titled Ephesians. And in this letter to the Ephesians, he speaks to them about their mouths, to these early Christians. He's saying, hey, hey, what you say is really, really important, has such incredible power. And what's so great about this is that Paul actually gives us a solution. Uh, unlike James, who is just kind of all like doom and gloom and controlling your mouth is hopeless and there's no chance you're actually going to you know, tame your tongue, he gives us a solution. And he gives us actually a word picture that I really want us to hone in on this morning. So we're going to jump here in this letter that he writes to the early Christians in Ephesus. Before we get to this word picture, we're going to back up just a little bit and give you just a little bit of context. So Ephesians chapter 4. He says, so I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. 
He's writing specifically to a group of Gentiles who have now converted to Christianity. Gentile simply means non-Jew. My guess is that literally probably just about every one of you who are watching right now, you by definition would be a Gentile because you are not Jewish. But, But he's writing to these Gentiles who have now converted to Christianity. Previously, they used to be pagans. Previously, they used to be polytheists. And he's specifically addressing who they used to be. That they had a far different worldview which was reflected in their behavior. Just like your worldview is reflected in your behavior. He continues, he says, they, and again talking about these pagans, these polytheists, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. He's saying those who still have this pagan worldview, which which by the way, you fairly recently held as well, that the, the people you're surrounded by in your culture, they're ignorant because their hearts are hardened. Now, now when Paul says these things, it kind of sounds like an insult, but, but, but it's actually not meant to be. It's simply an observation that Paul has. He, he's stating that they don't know any better. They, they, they can't see what you can see because they don't view the world the way that you view the world, that they're operating from this pagan worldview, from this polytheistic worldview. The, the, these gods that, that, that they worship, they're all about themselves, all about using people for their own benefit. And thus, this, this mentality began to be passed on to people. Might made right. It, it was bad luck to be poor. It, it was bad luck to be a woman because a woman held such a lower social status than a man. It, it was bad luck to be conquered. And, and Paul's saying in this new worldview, that, that this worldview that's been introduced to you by Jesus, it's a complete departure from all of that. So so it's only natural that that all of those around you, they're not going to understand your thinking. They're not going to understand where you're coming from. They're ignorant. Not not an insult, again, just an observation. He says, having lost all sensitivity, again, referring to these individuals with this pagan worldview, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and, and they are full of greed. Now again, you read this, it kind of sounds like an insult, but it would not have been insulting this first century audience. In fact, it would have just been obvious to that first century audience. This was just true. There was no sort of moral ethic within paganism in the first century. It was just do whatever feels good to you. It was all about pleasing yourself. Let's kind of flip that dynamic around. In Christianity, there is a very, very real moral ethic that's propagated, right? Things like respect your wife. Be faithful in your marriage. Tell the truth. Don't steal. Flee from sexual sin. That type of moral ethic, it did not exist in paganism. It it was every man for himself. Do whatever you wanted to do if it felt good to you. If it got you ahead in life, go for it. It was this winner-take-all type worldview. That, he continues, he says, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and you were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. He's going, that, that, that might be what's happening around you, but, but, but that's not the way of life that Christ has invited you into. Y'all, and, and this is just kind of a bit of a sidebar, this is just kind of bonus material. We should be so thankful, every one of you, Christian or not, we should be so thankful for Jesus, for the Apostle Paul and the early Christian church. And I know that that maybe sounds arrogant if you wouldn't identify as a Christian, but let me explain what I mean. Jesus, Paul, and the early Christian church advocated for what every single one of us, Christian or not, just assume. 
You assume that people have individual rights and dignity. You assume women should be treated with the same dignity as men. You assume the poor should be treated the same as the rich. You assume things like sexual harassment and sexual abuse is just bad, but not everybody does and not everybody did. You might not be aware of this, but, but dignity of the individual is most pronounced and is only assumed in cultures that have been influenced by Christianity. Now, now that doesn't mean that obviously everyone in those cultures is a Christian. We all know that's not the case. But in civilizations like the United States, Europe, the Western world in particular, where it's just assumed that women have the same rights as men, and children have value, and justice is held at a premium, you can guarantee yourself that those are areas that have been heavily influenced by the teachings of Jesus, that have been heavily influenced by Christianity. In fact, all of this stems from the idea that people are created in the image of God, and therefore, they have value. I find that so interesting. We have all benefited from this, whether you would identify as a Christian or not. He says, you, now he's shifting it to them, you you Gentiles who have converted to Christianity, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Just like we talked about in in part one, just like a big, heavy winter coat, you need to take off that old way of life. You, You need to take it off. You need to remove it. Now, now, when Paul uses this phrase, deceitful desires, we, we've actually all universally experienced this. We just haven't really had a name for it until now. And so thank you, Paul, for introducing this to us. The deceitful desires, those are those selfish desires that, that promise one thing, but then they don't deliver. And then a little bit further down the road, they whisper, next time. I mean, it didn't work out this time, but, but don't worry, next time. It, it didn't work out this time, but that, that was his fault. That, that was her fault. That was their fault. But, but don't worry, next time. Sleeping with him, that, that may not have worked. I mean, you still don't have Mr. Right, but don't worry, next time. Looking at pornography and, and satisfying that immediate desire may not have worked out long term, but don't worry, it'll be great next time. But Paul's telling us, don't fall for that. Take that off. Remove it and be made new. Be made new in the attitude of your minds. And to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You have been invited, every single one of you who are watching here today, you have been invited to live your lives in such a way as to reflect God, as to be like God. The the, the God who loves you so much that he sent his one and his only son into the world to pay the penalty for your sin, for my sin. God who isn't going to toy with you and use you as an instrument for his pleasure. No, no, the God who desperately wants a relationship with you and loves you as your heavenly father. God's going, just as I have embraced you and and went to enormous lengths to win you back, to, to fix that relationship that you screwed up, that you have no ability to solve yourself, I, I want you to show that kind of love to the people around you. Now, now at this point, Uh, Paul begins to give his audience very specific applications, and and wouldn't you know, one of the very specific applications that he offers to us has to do with our mouths, has to do with our words. He says this, he says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Now, now the word that we see right here, that word unwholesome, in, in its original Greek, it's actually a term that was typically used to describe rotten or spoiled fish, or the smell of spoiled fruit 
or, or the smell of deteriorating footwear. In, in the original context, that would have meant nasty, worn-out sandals. And so if you're kind of tracking with Paul, here's what he's saying. He's saying, avoid rotten mouth. Avoid rotten mouth. And maybe it's just me because it's like the Christmas season and my kids have probably already watched this movie, I don't know, a dozen times. It makes me think of this guy, the Grinch. I got to be honest, I, I don't really like this movie. The, the whole movie is just kind of like gross and, and demented to me. It grosses me watching out, watching like Jim Carrey waltz around as the Grinch and eat all that nasty stuff. And then especially when you get like close-up shots like that. It's like I can't even look at it. I promise I was making these slides and I was like gagging. I, I think we should actually start using this terminology around each other. When somebody says something really distasteful, someone's talking behind somebody else's back, somebody's being overly critical and just kind of nasty, we say, whoa, 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 hey, I'm not sure if you know this, but you have a terrible case of rotten mouth. I mean, it's bad. I mean, you got, you got to avoid that rotten mouth. In fact, I actually learned about this in church. I mean, you should come to church with me. You got to avoid rotten mouth. And, and to be clear, this extends beyond just telling the truth. Paul recognized that, like, man, even the pagans know that. Even the pagans know you're supposed to tell the truth. He's saying, don't let anything distasteful exit your mouth. As in none, as in nada. Because after all, you are in charge of your mouth. That The mouth is the gate and you are the gatekeeper. Stand guard over your mouth. In other words, we avoid rotten mouth by guarding our mouths. I know, revelational stuff. Now, now that's kind of that the negative. That, that, that's what we're supposed to avoid. That, that's what we're not supposed to do. But, but up next, he gives us this brilliant word picture, and this is really what we've been trying to get to this entire time. And, and he tells us what we are supposed to do. He says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. Now, I'm going to be honest. As a pastor, I mean, this verse right here, I mean, it sounds so nice and, and gentle and compassionate, and, and Christian, and perfect, and utopian, and, and kind, but as a human being, it, it, it sounds so unrealistic. I mean, right? I mean, is that, is that even possible? Are, are, are there times where your words just require a little more urgency? I mean, won't living in this way just kind of be unproductive? I mean, how am I supposed to talk to, to my older son when he's like, you know, just like putting all of his weight and like sitting on the infant around the house? It's like, Malachi, please discontinue placing your entire being on your baby brother. How's that going to work? Or maybe as the boss, hey, I, I don't know. Would you, would you mind maybe, I don't know, if it's not too much trouble coming into work like every once in a while? I mean, if that's okay. But, but here's what, what I want to make sure that we don't miss. But Paul's point is not to be nice. It's be helpful. Be helpful. So, so some of you, absolutely, that means you need to tone it down. That, that means you need to dial it back. But, but for others of you, that means you need to step it up. You need to be bold and, and say what needs to be said. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. He, he uses a construction term here to illustrate that your words are like building material. When you leave the construction site, when you leave the conversation, that the people you're speaking to should be better off for having spoken with you. If you're a Jesus follower, this is what you're called to do. If you're not a Jesus follower, I'm telling you, you, just be wise to give this a shot because think about it. Can we even imagine, can we imagine 
What, what would happen in our families if, if this right here is what shaped our conversations? Can, can you imagine what would happen in our marriages and in our dating relationships if this was the standard that we chose to live by? Can we imagine how our workplaces would change if, if just the Jesus followers got this right? If the people we spoke with were better off for having spoken with us because we allowed the conversation to be shaped by your needs rather than my needs. Now again, I recognize this. This does not come natural to any of us. But, but as a Jesus follower in particular, help me out here. For God so loved the world that he what? For God so loved the world that he gave. And in conversations with others, we should be looking to give the other person what they need, not what you want, not what you need. So don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. That they should be better off for having spoken with us. Paul's, Paul's concern here is both the content and the intent of our words. Leave people better. But it's like, Paul, I want to get my line in. And, and I don't know, I want to throw in my zinger. I mean, it's like a really good one. I, I want to tell my story. But Paul, I need to show this person just how smart I am. And God says, and Paul says, and Jesus says, <laughs> That's all about you. That's how the pagans live. That's how the world around you lives. This is not the way of your heavenly father. The goal isn't to be nice. The goal is to be a builder. And then it's like, okay, maybe we still don't get it. He gets really, really specific. And he says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. What Paul's communicating to us here is this. Don't say something to someone whom God loves, whom God saw fit to die for, that makes God say, oh, Shay, come on. Why would you say that? It's like, oh, Shay, like, I can't believe you would let those words come out of your mouth. Because here's God trying to build this person up, and you come along wielding a sledgehammer and a stick of dynamite, and you start demolishing and then, it's like Paul pauses, and he thinks to himself, I, I think some people are really going to struggle with this, <laughs> in particular because so much of what this deals with is completely out of our control. And so what he does next is, he gets like way up in our business, and he actually gets right to the root cause as to why so many of us struggle with this. But, but if you want any hope of being a builder rather than a demolisher, here is in fact what you must do. Get rid of all bitterness. And it's like, what, Paul? Weren't we just talking about our mouths? Weren't we just talking about our words? And he's going, no, 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 come on. It's all related. It's all intertwined. And, and Paul right here, he's not just telling us to, to stop being bitter. No, no, he's telling us to get rid of it. As in like pick it up and carry it away. Like, like take it out to the trash. Because you cannot be a builder if you are bitter. Your bitterness, and we've all seen this, it'll seep its way into your words, into your tone, into your attitude. It affects the content and the intent of everything you say. 
So it's like, okay, like get rid of all bitterness. Like what's the solution? How in the heck are we supposed to do that? Bitterness requires forgiveness. For most of you, think of the irony here. Your bitterness, it comes from words spoken to you, about you, or over you. You grew up in a home where your dad never said a positive word to you or over you. You were in a relationship where you were just dying for those words of affirmation, and they never came. You worked for a boss who nitpicked, 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 nitpicked everything you said, everything you did, and they never built you up. Words have robbed you of your reputation, your time, your self-esteem. And now you come into new relationships, new places of employment, maybe even a new church, and you're carrying that wound with you. And come on, you know this. It affects what you say, how you say it, and even beyond that, what you refuse to say. And you maybe have never thought about it in these terms, but for those of you who are watching right now that are wrestling with bitterness, think about this. You're trying to pay people back who never did anything to you because you can't pay the person back who actually wounded you. And Paul recognizes how incredibly personal this is. But he's going, if you want to have any chance at being a builder, you must release that bitterness through forgiveness. You need to give someone from the past what they don't deserve so we can give those around us what they do deserve. You have to release that bitterness. Because if you're not careful... Think about this. You'll end up taking the very thing from those whom you love the most, what someone once took from you. You'd think that that would probably be enough. It's like, okay, you're kind of piling it on, but he continues. He says, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. To put this in terms that we actually use, he's saying, get rid of those D words, those words that demean, degrade, or disrespect. What does demean mean? Demean means you don't matter. He doesn't matter, and she doesn't matter, and you don't matter. <laughs> and your heavenly father would step in and go, oh, she matters to me. He certainly matters to me. Degrade, it's simple. You don't make the grade. It means you don't measure up, and you don't measure up, and he doesn't measure up, and she doesn't measure up. And again, our heavenly father would step in and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Did, did you measure up to my standard? No. And, and how did I treat you when, when you didn't measure up to my standard? That's right. You sent your one and your only son to die for me because you so desperately wanted that relationship back. So, so how dare we degrade someone whom God saw fit to die for? And disrespect, I mean, that's simple, right? You're not worthy of my respect. He's not worthy of my respect. She's not worthy of my respect. And again, our Heavenly Father would step in and say, she's worthy of my respect. He's worthy of my respect. How dare you treat others in a different way than I have treated you? You haven't been called to treat people the way they've treated you. No, as a Jesus follower, you have been called to treat others in the way that your heavenly Father treated you through Christ. So, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. 
Do for others what God in Christ has done for you. Speak unto others as God in Christ has spoken over you. It doesn't mean avoid the hard things and shove them under the rug. No, it simply means say the hard things the right way. Allow God's grace to shape and inform your words towards others. Be a builder, not a demolisher. Be helpful. Avoid rotten mouth. Now, as I wrap this thing up this morning, uh, I'm going to ask you two very practical and poignant questions. Ready? Where do you have work to do? And who hopes you'll get to work soon? Where do you have work to do? And who's hoping you'll get to work soon? Now, y'all, this is, this is me being really, really vulnerable. And, and I'm certain this isn't just a me thing, but I'll, I'll gladly be vulnerable and kind of throw myself under the bus right now. Isn't it the people that we're closest to that we often hurt the most with our words, with our tone? This is, a, this is a really, really hard message to prepare. In fact, as I wrote these two questions down, I was in tears. Thinking of my beautiful, patient wife, Andrea, and my children. That, that so often my words, and even more for me, my tone, has been used as an instrument to demolish rather than to build. And what's worse, for the people that I care about the most. For those of you who are easily critical, for those of you that that sarcasm is just kind of a, a way that you communicate, that never builds anyone. No one has ever been made stronger through sarcasm and criticism. For you parents out there, in particular you fathers, you really need to hear this. Sarcasm builds nothing but resentment. Sarcasm will not make your son or your daughter tougher. It'll just make it tougher for you to connect with your son or your daughter. So where do you have work to do? And who hopes you'll get to work soon? I promise this is the last thing that, that I'm going to suggest, a bit of a homework assignment for all of you, whether you would call yourself a Christian or not. And for some of you, I recognize that this is a completely foreign idea. But this week, will you commit this verse to memory? Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Ephesians 4, 29. I'm positive, Christian or not, if you allow this passage, if you allow this verse to shape and direct your conversations, not, not, not only will you be better for it, but, but, but all of the yous around you, and in particular the yous that are closest to you, will be better for it as well. Release that bitterness. Don't allow your past to shape your present. And, and if you're listening here today and, and you think that just sounds so unrealistic because I don't know your story, make sure you come back next week for part four the final part of me and my big mouth. But let's wrap it up just how we started. Come on, everybody with the hands. I know it's weird and your teenage son's looking at you like, what the heck is wrong with you? But come on, get those arms up. Quick to listen, slow to speak. Quick to listen, slow to speak.